Welcome to another edition of the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin, Coordinator of Communications and Marketing for the College of Arts and Sciences at Oklahoma State University. Joining me this episode is Andrew Doust, Head of the Department of Plant Biology, Ecology, and Evolution. We discuss a variety of topics, including how people tend to misunderstand plants and overlook their importance. He highlights some of their most interesting characteristics in a way that might change how you view them. You and I were talking the other day, and you were telling me about how you uh, met your wife. You got your wife to start dating you something with well, with uh, talk about photosynthesis. <laughs> I think she was more uh, enamored of the enthusiasm than the subject matter. Okay. But uh, maybe. But I just <laughs> taught photosynthesis to introduction to plant biology. And, you know, I've been thinking about photosynthesis and, and how that defines plants so completely. That, that one act of taking, of, of making your own sugar, basically crystallizing sunlight and making it into sugar, that defines everything else you want to know about plants. So why do plants stay in one place? Why don't they get up and walk around? Because they have this vast superstructure and also root structure because everything they're trying to get is very dilute. So sunlight is dilute, carbon dioxide is dilute, mineral nutrients in the soil are dilute. They've got to go find them. They have to then build up this very large body in order to do that. And once you root it in the soil, well, there really isn't anything you can do about it. So I think photosynthesis explains a lot about why plants look like they do. I guess that also explains why the average human looks at a plant and doesn't kind of see much to, go, to be going on with because they're still, mm-hmm. I mean, still in terms of human time. Mm-hmm. That's also a mistake. That's a mistake to think that plants are still. Mm-hmm. In fact, plants zip around the world. It's just you have to look at the right piece of them to make sense of that. Seeds travel. Pollen travels. Pollen gets up your nose. Well, it's <laughs> not a tree getting up your nose, but it is the traveling part of that tree mm-hmm. that's getting up your nose. So I think you know we don't see plants because we don't live in the same time scale as plants, I think. Mm. But in fact, they're doing everything we're doing, living, breathing, if you like. We can talk about that, that misconception thing in a moment. Uh, Reproducing, traveling through space, traveling through time. Seeds are time travelers. Mm. So yeah, I mean, when everyone starts talking to me about plants as being boring or I never see them or they're just green stuff amongst which animals play, you know, I kind of get hot under the collar and have to explain. (laughs) So it all comes down to photosynthesis. Well, and when you talk about plants moving, um, I know you and I talked a little bit about sunflowers. Sunflower. Oh, yes, that's right. Where the sunflowers track the sun. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. So there's been some recent research on that. So people think that the flowers track the sun. but In fact, that's not the piece that does. The flowers or the, the heads mm-hmm. face the east. And that seems to be an uh, adaptation to get warmed up early. In, uh, in, in the morning mm. and to dry out and therefore not to get fungus attack. So mm. you might find them preferentially facing one way, not the west. But the, the vegetated plant, as it grows, the leaves swing. They swing, they follow the sun, and then during the night they come back again. Mm. And then the next day they follow the sun. And so what is it that's moving? It's not that they're not, they're not like animals that moves their arms up and down. In fact, they're growing one way and then growing the other way. So if you actually look at the stem, it zigzags very faintly because a plant is growing, growing. And then what I mean by growing is adding more cells that are pointing in one direction Mm -hmm. and adding them in another direction. So it's really kind of cool behavior because Mm -hmm. it's a behavior that is, there's a stimulus, it's reacting to the stimulus and it's reacting to the stimulus in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. So not so different from animals in that sense. Yeah, and I was trying to think of plants that we can see move, like not just with oh, the time Venus lapse. Venus flytrap. Venus flytrap, of course, came classic. to mind. Or uh, a sundew also. I love sundews. You know sundews? I don't. Well, Venus flytraps, sundews, pitcher plants are all plants of extremely nitrogen-poor habitats, mm. like the sand plains of Georgia or Florida, places mm. like that. So they've adapted. I mean, they basically can't get any nitrogen the usual way for a plant which is to suck it up through the water. So they basically have to you know, take an animal strategy, digest another animal. Mm. P- pitcher plants are just basically leaves that have been uh, 
differentiated into a big narrow bucket, which they fill full of fill full of acid, mm -hmm. and the animals drop in and get um, digested away. Wow. So uh, even as big, maybe even as big as a rat. I mean, there are some in Borneo that can take rats and small <laughs> birds. Wow, um, not humans generally. <laughs> um, but the Venus flytrap and the sundews, Venus flytrap, of course, everyone knows the two leaf blades or mm. two leaf halves that, that, that come together pretty quickly and mm. trap an insect. That's one of the rare instances of plant movement that's reversible. Mm. So that, that's basically, the, the way it works is that there are cells at the basis of those leaves that are filled with water and when the insect touches one of the hairs that are on the, on the flat surface of each of those inner surfaces of the leaves, a bunch of ions get pumped across the membrane, the water follows them, the cells collapse, and the leaflets come together. Mm. So it's a, a rapid movement that's all driven by water in the, in the plant. And then they can kind of reset it again. Same thing happens with sensitive plant that has all those leaflets that you touch them and they go, oh no, don't <laughs> touch me. <laughs> Uh, um, and so they collapse, and then again, they can come back again. So there are some pretty isolated examples of plants that have that response. And it's always too, it's interesting, it's always in relationship to an animal that has this different timescale. So mm. plants are adapting to the animal timescale to get their job done. Plants are amazing manipulators of animals, I have to tell you. I mean, all those pretty flowers, they're the sole purpose of dragging in some sort of insect, making it pick up pollen, take mm -hmm. it to some other flower. I mean, yeah, oh, wheat. That's another great example. Mm -hmm. You have to think of, wow, we domesticated wheat. We're so great. But the wheat plant is happy as Larry. It's like, wow, I am the most successful plant in the world. <laughs> These poor suckers have taken me everywhere. So, you know, in some sense, it's who domesticated whom. Mm. Do you have other thoughts on... Uh, the strategies of plants versus animals, because they have, they do have yes, very different strategies. Totally, totally. Well, and, and you know, it all, to me, it comes back to that thing about photosynthesis, making the plant stay in one place. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you stay in one place, that means, well, of course, you can't move, mm -hmm. you can't run away. So what are you going to do when you're under attack, or not even just under attack, when the environment changes? How do you react if you cannot move from the sun to the shade? Mm or build a fire or whatever. So plants, al along with their becoming stationary, they have become incredibly sensitive. Mm. Incredibly, they have to be incredibly sensitive and aware because they have to know what's going on in order to react in the appropriate way. Mm. So that might be, I'm being bitten by a caterpillar over here, so I'm going to start secreting chemicals and uh, defense chemicals throughout my entire plant body so that if other caterpillars come, I'm already ready for them. Mm. Uh, it might be uh, this leaf's now come over my kind of horizon and I'm being shaded. I can sense I'm being shaded by the change in the light quality. Therefore, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make this bud grow out into a branch that goes out into the light. So it's a dynamic uh, assessment of the environment moment by moment and a reaction to that environment moment by moment in a way that is different from animals. I mean, it has the same effect, right? It's, it's dealing with your environment, whether it's biological predator, etc., or whether it is abiotic, you know, environmental. It's all about having, having to deal and to react. And that being stuck means that a lot of those reactions have to be different and a lot more tuned, a lot more um, are flexible in those responses. The other thing about plants is very different from animals is that when you are born, when you were born, Jacob, <laughs> you look very similar to today. <laughs> I mean, maybe not the beard, but otherwise. I, I, I'm bald, so I, <laughs> I look the same then and now in a lot of ways, but yeah. Uh, so animals <laughs> have a very determinate life cycle, but what I mean is that they develop and are born as a little you, and mm -hmm. then you grow up into big you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you change some, of course, but, animal, but plants are not like that. Plants are really indeterminate creatures, by which I mean that the stem cells that produce us, they have multitudes of them in different places. Each growing point of a plant has the potential to produce new tissue, new things. Mm. So you can cut off one side of a tree and the tree will do something else. It doesn't, it, cutting off one side of us is problematic mm -hmm. for most animals, but cutting off one side of a plant, no, because mm -hmm. they have a very different strategy 
they have very different kind of capabilities, capacity for continuing growth. And something like a redwood tree, 5,000 years old, or a bristlecone pine, basically they're living forever or until something kills them. Let me ask you an unfair question. Thank you. Do, do you have a favorite plant? Oh, well, <laughs> so no. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't. But I can tell you how I got interested in plants and this might give some insight yeah. into my character. So uh, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Sydney and um, I grew- Sydney, Texas, yeah. based on the accent. Well, well, da south of the border <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> no, Sydney, Australia. Yes. Um, so, so I was in the suburbs of Sydney, mm. grew up there. We, we, I grew vegetables, which I liked doing. But what I really liked, I had a weed garden. Mm. And I had a weed garden because I was very interested in irrigation systems. I had a huge irrigation system and I had weeds. I used to go around to all the neighbors and collect weeds. They loved me. So what I like is I kind of liked plants that were kind of making it on their own. They had, a tough, they had some sort of element of toughness about them. So, I mean, I work on grasses now and, and in some way, I work on weedy grasses mm. as well. They're my main study system. It's a ge genetic model for crop grasses. But I like them because I think they're elegant and uh, bold. Ele yeah, elegant and bold. Yes. So when you say you went to your neighbors and collected weeds, are you saying you'd like go, hey, can I go in your flower bed and just pull out this yes. and this and this and can take I it back with me? Can I please have your weeds? Would you mind if I came and took your weeds? And who would say no? Well, no one said no. Yeah. No one said no. I made some good friends that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's, and how old were you when you were doing this? I was like nine or 10, wow. something like that. Okay. That is interesting. I was interested. I was interested in animals too. Mm. I used to track ants around the gardens and think things like that. But I like I like plants. I like plants partly because they breed better humans. I think people who are interested in plants are generally better humans. Mm. I mean, your listeners may disagree, but <laughs> but it is my experience that that is true. In fact, it's interesting. So I read an interview by Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, famous neurologist. And he said that apart from psychoactive drugs, there are only two things he'd ever seen that had really helped mentally ill patients. I mean, severely mentally mm -hmm. ill patients. Music was one of them, gardening was the other. And I think both of those are about structure. Mm -hmm. and I, but not just structure out there, structure that you have to get into. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever gardened, but when you actually are having to do something at the plant's pace, it changes who you are as mm -hmm. well. That, that's, this is my contention, mm -hmm. I'm living by it. I think it's very interesting. I have to think that plants and humans, it's not like humans were just sitting around and thought, oh, well, let's go domesticate some plants and we'll be, well, that, that, that'll be the way forward. No, <laughs> right. I mean, we evolved together, not just as humans, but back in time. So this interconnection between plant and animal is very deep. And I think it's, I think it is both uh, practical and, and real and out there, but also we are also we like plants and I think people, the more people get to know and appreciate plants, which is what I really want to push, people to go out and look better, more at plants, then they really understand how incredible and sensitive and amazing and also um, connected with us that they are. Mm. You mentioned you study grasses now. Yeah. Why grasses? What, what uh, attracted you to that? Well. I came to the States for a postdoc and the, the person I was working on was working on grasses. Mm. So I, th I said, oh, okay, great. Grasses are a great genetic system. We know a lot about them. So I was interested in the genetics of how plants come into being, how, they, how their form develops over time from the seed to the adult plant. And uh, grasses were a good system to look at that. But when I got there, she said, so uh, what are you gonna work on? Uh, go down to the greenhouse and find something to work on. So I went down to the greenhouse and uh, she was working on a particular group of grasses, particularly related to corn. Mm. Uh, and I went down, I saw these other grasses, and I thought, wow, I'll just start looking at their development, especially the development of the flowers. And it turns out they're incredibly beautiful under electron microscope. So I, I chose a group of grasses because they looked pretty. Mm. And then turned out, I, mean, I built it into a model system that is kind of a model for switchgrass and sorghum and other important crop grasses. So this is Ceteria, foxtail millet as a model for other grasses that we've domesticated and use for forage and grain and things like that. Also, it's an ancient domestication in China. 
The first time I met you, I think I mentioned that my grandfather is a retired botanist, and he loves to point out things that we do as humans that we directly copied from plants, um, like uh, Velcro was inspired by burrs, I believe it oh, is. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the others. He has a whole list of them. Um, but there are there have been a lot of times in history that we as humans see something and go, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to copy that. Yeah, I mean, ev even the leaf. and a, a, a leaf is a functional photon collector. I mean, it is exquisitely designed for its function. Mm. And, you know, everything that you need a solar collector to do, a leaf already does, and in a sense, much more efficiently. So efficiently that actually many of those photons are actually uh, emitted back as heat or fluorescence because it's too efficient. So yeah, some, some of the things that plants have done before us are mm. the aerodynamic movement mm -hmm. of seeds, especially in environments like rainforest canopies where there's no wind to mm. take them away. So there are seeds with one helicopter blade. There mm. are seeds with two helicopter blades. There are seeds that where the helicopter blades are six or eight. There are, there are seeds that have man, managed a sophistication of engineering that we actually haven't yet mm. managed to do. So yeah, I think we copy a lot or we, uh, I, I, even if you think about, so what are the round things in nature that would al enable us eventually to, to develop wheels? Mm. Well, they're not usually rocks. They're logs. They're, I mean, moving the pyramids, whatever, is a log-based uh, enterprise. You mentioned uh, the interaction between plants and animals earlier. I, I see in university courses that ecology, while it talks about food chains, really focuses on the animals as the main actors. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, those animals don't, can't possibly be there without the framework of the plants that they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. So to a really large extent, terrestrial ecology is defined by plants. And if you look kind of more at the, at the chemical level, so the, the, the global exchange of things like nitrogen, carbon, et cetera, is almost entirely driven by plants. Mm -hmm. Plants are the biggest players in the carbon cycle, for example. There's uh, not enough understanding of plants as uh, the carbon pool, and as the drivers of things like the weather, for example. Mm. The Amazonian rainforest is a great example mm -hmm. of this. You know, it's so large, there's so many plants that are pouring water into the atmosphere that it creates its own climate. And that climate is not just local to the Amazon, it affects us in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is truly, we're not sure whether it's, you'd say it's global, but it's certainly regional to a much greater extent than the Amazonian rainforest. The burning of it that's happening at the moment, mm -hmm. I think there's what? I read a report, there's like 80,000 fires this mm. year. Um, I mean, there's always been fires in the Amazon, especially over the last couple of decades with land cr uh, clearing, et cetera. Mm. But that's really increased. Uh, it also goes along with climate change that has dried out some areas there. And the real danger is that the, the very complex rainforest, which is making that weather, will become simplified and be, by, by, by becoming simplified, it will, it will disappear. The more it gets cut up and the more non-rainforest, so like savanna pieces there, those don't produce the great water streams that rainforests do. And by water streams, I mean, you really have to look at a tree and imagine that what's, well, imagine with your eyes what's really happening, which is that it is a great upside down fountain. Because of the evaporative force at the leaf surface, it's pulling water through the plant and then releasing it in great clouds mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. So that's what a big tree does. A grass doesn't do that. Mm. There, there's going to be a flipping point with the Amazon where there's not enough rainforest to keep its own weather going. And there, then the rains will decrease and the savanna will spread and, the, and, and potentially the rainforest could disappear. Mm. The fire is hastening that process or producing conditions where there's you know, reduction in, in the amount and the, and not just the amount, but the continuous amount of rainforest. Mm. So it's a planetary concern. Yeah, well, and you're talking about weather. Um, oxygen also is obviously a huge thing here. Um, and I know that's a thing I've heard a lot recently with the fires in the Amazon is um, something like 20% of the Earth's oxygen comes from there. Um, so that will affect everyone. Yeah, I think I think the effects of 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 the of the rainforest forest potentially disappearing of 
burning, etc., are going to affect us a lot sooner than we're going to mm. gasp out our oxygen. Mm. But of course, the plants made the oxygen in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did not have an oxygen environment until plants came along. And I don't mean, in this case, this is just unicellular bacteria that are photosynthetic. You know, every cell needs oxygen to break down sugars. That's true of plants, it's true of animals. But photosynthesis splits water, takes the hydrogen into the photosynthetic process, and, and then oxygen is a waste product. You know, for plants, they've got to get rid of that oxygen. If they don't get rid of it, it poisons them in the mm. quantities we're talking about. So yeah, you know, so we, we breathe the waste products of plants, plants breathe the waste products of us. It's a cycle, cycle of life. As someone who basically, uh, you advocate for plants are, uh, we take them for granted. Certainly you don't want the Amazon rainforest on fire, but are you happy that people are going, oh wait, this is important, and now maybe there's a, we stop as the average person, stop and go, oh yeah, plants matter, because there's this huge fire going on in this place I've heard of. Yeah, I, th I think that's true, and I think this, uh, this generation of students is, I find them very concerned about mm. e e ecology and, uh, and, and environment. And so, yeah, they're certainly listening. The thing I want to connect that with is like a real visceral feeling for, for the plant kingdom. So mm -hmm. not just the Amazon down there, but th this is the beauty of plants here. I mean, I think it's that connection that makes you care. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, we... We started this semester teaching introductory biology again. We sent them all home with seeds, and, and that's their first project. Mm. And some are like, that's kind of like elementary school, isn't <laughs> it? And yes, it is. That's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. You didn't learn it in elementary school. You're going to learn it now. <laughs> You've got to look. Mm. I mean, that looking is really, yeah, that looking and seeing and appreciating, you have to cultivate that. Mm. And life is busy. Ele electronic things are everywhere. Mm -hmm. The natural world, you know, th there's not enough looking. So just looking, I think, is super important. Mm. For a lot of us who aren't botanists um, or in plant biology, ecology, and evolution, um, <laughs> the most we think about plants is when it comes to food. Um, of course, right now there's a big uh, debate, uh, or at least there's a lot of uh, talk about GMOs and food. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I started off 10, 15 years ago being dubious about GMOs because it was a very blunt tool. Mm. It was just like, and it was, it was also that playful time when we would take any piece of DNA and stick it in and see what happened. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we do this with conventional breeding too. Mm -hmm. Conventional breeding is also putting genomes together. And there's plenty of cases of artichokes that killed people. And you know, there's lots mm. of conventional mistakes. So mm -hmm. I don't want you to, don't want anyone to think that GMO is somehow inherently that different from any other breeding technique. Mm. But these days with CRISPR technology, uh, this ability to go in and specify exactly where you want to do something. And it may not even be putting a gene in, it may simply be asking a gene to do less of something mm. so that it might produce less um, nasty compounds like tannins or phenols or mm. things and so that it's more palatable. So that I think is necessary. Mm -hmm. It's necessary especially for, there are problems, there are some really difficult problems out there for agriculture. Salination would be one. I mean, mm. too much salt is really a really difficult problem. And anywhere you do irrigation, whether it's Central Valley in California or Western Oklahoma, salt starts to become more and more of a problem. Mm. That, that some sort of engineering for allowing plants to exclude, tolerate, excrete salt in some ways is really, really important. So that's an area I think of like, wow, there's really no other way to do this except by trying to thoughtfully partner mm. with the plant to work out a solution to this very unnatural environment. I mean, like all science or like all anything, I'm for it if you do it in a thoughtful way and you think about the consequences. I mean, of course, act, doing actions means consequences. Mm -hmm. So doing nothing also means consequences. Mm -hmm. So I'm, in general, I think GMOs have their place and we ought to think, caref uh, think about using them carefully. I will say, however, that um, patenting plant variety rights and uh, m making GMOs that 
uh, seem to have a particularly uh, profit bent to them seems less of a useful way to, mm. for the world. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, because it uses a lot of technology, it's expensive to do. It makes, uh, it's not surprising that big, com big companies can make money out of it, but really that's not the, the most useful way, mm. of course, to use them. And in Oklahoma, a plant that uh, is getting a lot of attention right now would be cannabis. We had the medical marijuana law pass, and boy, the number of dispensaries that have popped up yeah. Uh, there's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I understand you in your department, you all are uh, reacting to that in some ways. You've, you've got a class you're going to yeah, be Yeah, we're going to start a class in the spring called Cannabis Science and Society. Mm -hmm. And this, this is an introductory class. The course wants to look both at society impact of cannabis, but also the biology of cannabis, which makes it this very desirable crop mm -hmm. and very desirable substance for, for many different reasons. Cannabis is a great example of the chemical factory mm. that plants can be. And I think one of the things that we are at the complete infancy at, and it's because research is so restricted on cannabis at the moment, and that has got to change to really bring its full potential, is we're in our infancy about understanding how all of the compounds work together in cannabis to produce various different effects, some of which we might want as a society, some of which we might not one as a society. Um, so that's, that's why understanding the biology and the societal impacts together makes a lot of sense. You don't want to minimize the fact that there are repercussions for the use of, the, for, of, of cannabis as a drug or the biology that makes it possible to do so and that could be tweaked in various ways. GMOs will have a part to play in cannabis breeding as well in a way that really up to now has not happened at all. Mm -hmm. And you said that's an intro course, so if a student is listening, they haven't had anything else, uh, they haven't had any other science or, or anything in your department, that is still a course they could sign up for. Yeah, yeah, I, they could sign up for that. I mean, I think hopefully what that course will show, it'll showcase what plants can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, cannabis is really a poster child for how it interacts with humans and society mm. and how it's the particularity of the chemistry of making cannabis and the other of THC and the other associated uh, compounds. I want people to see that cannabis is not just a special case, but is an example of how plants use uh, the environment and uh, attacks by other creatures as stimuli to produce all of these chemicals that we can use. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to use it as sort of an introduction to the wonderful world of plant chemistry. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to photosynthesis because being stuck in the ground means that plants are incredibly sensitive, but also that they have, they produce a, an amazing variety of compounds that they use to defend themselves, communicate, etc. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's sort of no surprise that the, that the organisms that are stuck in one place and are attacked continually from all sides by different critters it's no surprise that they're the ones who develop the most elaborate defenses. Mm -hmm. And that those defenses, uh, because some of those critters, bacteria, viruses, or whatever that are attacking plants, also attack us, that many of those compounds are also useful in our own medicines. Mm. So something like 60% of medicines are either directly or indirectly from plants. Mm. So directly like willow was used for headaches, and, but then indirectly so we can make it now um, we now, we now have the blueprint from the plant so we can make it and, and tweak it chemically. Plants are really the chemical factory par excellence of the living world and um, they have uh, achieved chemical sophistication that, that we're only just beginning to emulate. And not only, it's, it's not that we can't make some of these compounds, but to make them with a the specificity mm. that plants make them in the right place at the right time, we don't know how to yet. But it's such a burgeoning area of research where uh, you know, we, we've just recently started this push in pre-pharmacy and pre-forensics, partly because we really see there's this great need to train scientists, train biologists, train students to understand plants as this amazing uh, cornucopia mm. of, of, of uh, possible cures for all sorts of things and to get the tools necessary to go out and search for these. I know OSU's done some research with finding other plants aside from corn that could be converted to ethanol. How's that going? Do you think that is uh, promising? 
I think it is promising. I think, of course, it all is driven by the price mm -hmm. of fossil fuels mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> as to how promising it is. The other thing is working out how to de-engineer a plant. Mm. It's all about the sun, okay? Mm. <laughs> Basically, it's all about the sun. It's all about converting the energy of the sun into something usable. Mm. I mean, do you want to go through a plant? Do you want to go through fossil fuels, which are also plants, of course? Mm. Uh, do you want to go through some solar collector? I mean, I guess you could even argue that the wind is also affected <laughs> mm. by the sun. But uh, it's all about the efficiency of conversion of sun energy into some other form of energy. Plants, like grasses, have the problem that the easiest thing to deal with are the seeds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, seeds are useful for other things. Seeds are, I mean, you can't just take all the seeds out of the hungry mouths of children and <laughs> put them into your car. So, uh, so, the, so the really holy grail has been to use everything else, mm -hmm. to use all the leaves, stuff like that. Trouble with that is that they're, they're difficult to work with. They're mm -hmm. difficult, I mean, you can burn them easily. Mm. But for, to get bacteria to digest them, it's difficult because plants have had millions of years to protect themselves mm. against that sort of attack. I mean, they're not newbies on the block as far as attack. <laughs> so it's been quite difficult to, to work out how to get bacteria or fungi for that matter to attack biomass in a way that can really produce energy. So to me, it's got a couple of different elements. I mean, one is purely economic. The other one is under, it's driven more by the understanding, of, I mean, do we really understand how plants are put together and therefore how can we manipulate them? I think that's more useful down the line, especially, for example, when we go out into space. Mm. I mean, when we go out into space, plants are going to be the things that give us oxygen, that we're going to have to use as fuel sources. The, the sun's energy is great, but you know, it's not always there in the mm. quantities that we need. Remember, sunlight is actually a diffuse quantity, so mm. how do we work that out? So I think there's a whole lot of really basic, almost engineering principles that we're still trying to you know, get to the bottom of with plants mm. that have in implications, not just whether we can get some energy out of them now, but you know, for the future of what we want to do as a species. And you referenced earlier moving here from Australia. Yes. How long have you been in America? <laughs> 20 years this month. So longer than many of our listeners. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You'd think I'd learn the language better. But <laughs> what, what is that experience like? Because I think for most of us, we haven't had that experience to move that far from home, uh, even though you, you do speak the same language. But Do I? <laughs> mostly. Um, I, I would trade you accents in a minute. Uh, but, but what is it like to, to move halfway around the world? Well, I didn't just do it, didn't just do it like that. Mm -hmm. So my first trip out of Australia, I went to India and sat in the mountain for a few months. Um, <laughs> Doing some sort of studying? No, no, I was just being a hippie. Okay, <laughs> I wow. I was just being a hippie. Actually, it wasn't in India, it was in Nepal. Okay. I went to India first and got completely freaked out and <laughs> fled to Nepal. <laughs> so um, then I went to England and had a garden design company mm -hmm. in London. Um, which is great because English people love plants. I mean, they love plants in a way that Americans don't mm. and Australians don't. I mean, they love gardens, you know. Mm. So they're really, really immersed in this garden culture. Then I went back to Australia and started life as a scientist mm. again. I, I worked in the botanic gardens in Sydney. I traveled all around Australia, picking up rare plants and describing them for the flora of Australia. So when I came, I did a PhD, then came to the States, I had had some other traveling already. Mm. But let me tell you what I think about still water in Australia. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people think that Australia and still water don't look alike. Mm -hmm. But in fact, most of Australia looks like still water mm -hmm. because uh, most of Australia is very old um, and eroded mm -hmm. and nutrient poor um, and dry, uh, or at least seasonally dry. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, I feel at home <laughs> in still water. I mean, there's no beaches, right? Right. That is the one thing I guess you'd notice that is, is not here. Mm -hmm. At least there hasn't been a beach since the Permian. But <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I, I, what I like about Oklahoma and the, and the students I teach mm -hmm. is that Australia is a pretty, I mean, I think of it as a, it, it values things like mateship. I know that's kind of a fluffy term to use. I don't know. 
let me say that again. It values a sort of um, getting together, working together ethos that, that I see here as well. Mm. It's not very individually, uh, it, it doesn't value the individual as highly as some parts of the American society mm. seem to. So Oklahoma, in that regard, also feels a little more like home. I mean, there's more sense of working together, mm. I find, about the students. I also love the students often know more about plants than you find in the average city person. Mm. So, mm. so that's good as well. There are some odd things about America. I mean, for example, when I arrived, so in Australia, we have five banks. Mm. Five banks, just five <laughs> banks total, right? come here and there are like 3,000 banks. Yeah. What is that? And when I, when I actually came here 20 years ago, there seemed to be 500 telephone companies mm. as well. Yes. There's fewer now, but in Australia there are two. Mm. That's competition. <laughs> so I didn't know. It just seems incredible. America seems a lot more bitty, a lot more cut up into little mm. pieces mm -hmm. than Australia is. And partly because it's much, much bigger. Much, much bigger population-wise. I mean, yeah. a lot bigger. What do you think of the American accent? Stereotypically, we hear the English accent, and it sounds intelligent, professorial. Oh, yeah. The Australian accent sounds cool. Mm -hmm. What does an American sound like to you? Uh, open. Open? Like open. accepting? Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's what the American accent... I mean, I, I must admit, I always get a kick out of uh, students asking me where my accent's from. Mm. You know, oh, you got a funny accent. <laughs> so do you, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I usually tell them something like, uh, yeah, it cost me $200 on the internet. And they're like, really? <laughs> uh, I shouldn't do that. I don't know, the American accent, something you get, you, well, actually, I'll tell you what. So uh, the thing is, in Australia, there's lots of American media, mm. lots of American movies, of course, et cetera. So it seems like America's a lot like Australia, mm. but it's very different. Mm. You know, it really is very different. Australia is much more like Britain mm. than, than even though there's not much sun in Britain. But uh, <laughs> so America is just a very different place in that regard. I was surprised how different. Mm. But, you know, I've made it my home. I've married an, an American. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it's a place of great opportunity. And I, I suppose that's a cliche, but it really is true uh, that it's a place where you can you are expected and applauded for achieving. Mm. And actually that's not so true in Australia. Mm. Uh, Australia, what goes along with the more collaborative atmosphere is also uh, don't get too much above your station mm. approach as well, whereas America doesn't have that at all. So and that, that's quite a liberating thing about America. Mm. Uh, so I have this exercise that I often do in my introductory classes where I get them to go look at a plant for three hours or some plant part or something like that for three hours. Only, only three hours because I don't want to overtax them. And they have to do a report on what the experience is like. What do you mean by look at them for three hours? Like well, they have to sit down and stare at it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, so, and, and then they write a report. And what do you think, what would you do if I gave that to you? I would definitely be making lots of observations. That's the only way I'd be able to keep myself occupied is to find all the things about this plant that I'd never noticed before. Well, that is a nice uh, <laughs> stereotypical answer. <laughs> well, that, that genuinely is what I would do. Yeah, but it's very interesting when you read the reports. Like you get 140 reports and you read them and you know instantly which ones have done the exercise and which ones have just mm. blown it off. <laughs> because the ones that have done it, you see their perceptions change through time. Mm -hmm. You see what bit grabs them and takes them down a, a, a line of thought. Uh, and you see the ones who are just kind of thinking about it and the ones who are actually looking and seeing and kind of engaging with. And it's that level of engagement. I mean, it wouldn't have to be with the plant, right? But this ability to go mm -hmm. in and see without so many filters, mm -hmm. that's, I think, an incredibly valuable thing for students to, to take away. So I do it with plants. My wife is, you know, is an art historian. Yeah, there's, a, there's an exercise similar in art history, which mm -hmm. sounds more interesting. But, you know, the plant actually works really well. <laughs> you talked earlier about how much you liked plants when you were younger. And so it sort of makes sense that you would study them. But why should people study plants? I mean, people should care, I suppose, because plants are what allow us to live on this planet. I mean, there would be no breathable atmosphere. There would be no food, etc. without plants. But... 
it's sometimes hard to make a case that everyone should care simply because it's necessary. I think in terms of more about the, 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 what plant biology can do for us as we move forward, mm -hmm. that we really ought to be thinking more carefully about. Food is an obvious one, mm -hmm. and growing food in, in, in bad places or difficult places, places that have been polluted by us or uh, in other ways made more difficult to grow in, we really need to focus on how we can make plants do more for us. Mm -hmm. I think human health is another area where plants historically have been of huge importance, mm -hmm. have somehow seemed to be a bit eclipsed by the rise of modern analogues to plant products. But uh, you know, obviously bringing the ideas from the plant world, but then, uh, then making them in a laboratory. But I think there's a whole area of secondary plant secondary compounds that we haven't explored the synergistic effects of compounds mm -hmm. that really are going to be very important for us moving forward with things like resistance to all sorts of antibiotics. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there's lots of stuff out there that is uh, under-researched, crying out for research and can really help us in some of the most intractable health, pro health problems we have today. Feeding the world is part of it, but we have had students who graduate and go to med school. Mm. Certainly go to law school because there's a real big area of law to do with patents and to do with intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And this intersection between seed companies wanting to develop new seeds, but also wanting to get money for them and how that interacts with farmers is, is, a, is a big issue, big social issue as well. And that's uh, some of our, our students have gone into those fields. Of course, they're going into pharmacy, medical school, uh, academia, but also conservation. Mm. I mean, trying to save the rainforest, or at least trying to save the habitat even for animals we might like to have. I mean, animals cannot live in concrete jungles. They mm. need their habitat as well. Uh, a biotech as well. Uh, there, there are lots of avenues for plant biologists in all sorts of lab-based or field-based uh, policy, uh, and I think this is an area that's just going to get more and more important to us as we do more and more damage basically to the world. Mm. So I think there's also great possibilities in how we build our environment and how we build our machines to learn from what plants have had a very long time to perfect. Mm. For example, we have helicopters that use multi-blades to produce the, the, the lift but plants have managed to achieve that with a single blade in some of the fruits that fall off, like maples, for example, and rainforest trees as well. So there are uh, ideas for locomotion that we can take for plants. There are also ideas for building better structures. Bamboo, for example, is a hollow tube where all, where, where that wall of the tube, all of the, the very strong elements of what towards the outside of that thin wall and it makes an incredibly strong structure. We don't build pipes like that, but we could build pipes better if we took some inspiration from mm -hmm. plants. Another example I found really interesting is the pomelo. You know, the pomelo is you know, one of the few true citrus fruits. It is huge. It's like four or five pounds. And when that fruit falls off the tree, it bounces on the ground and, you know, needs to stay intact. If it breaks apart, it rots. Mm. So it needs to stay intact. So the, the fruit, the rind of the pomelo is incredibly thick and it grades from being hard on the outside through progressively softer tissues, which act as a cushioning element for when it breaks. And that, that design feature of having the cushioning that is integrated and not in distinct layers is something that is a really smart solution to mm -hmm. how, to trans, how to protect a delicate interior from a hard, with a hard exterior. Pitcher plants, they get some of their nutrition from insects that fall into a slippery pit that is formed from the leaf. Now that slip that makes the insects fall in is incredibly slippery. And it's the sort of slippery that we would really benefit from in building pipes that we move fluids through because fluids would move a lot quicker if there was no friction on the pipe wall. So that's just another example of how plants have engineered solutions to things that we need but we need to go and look to see them. And I think there's a great, great future, great possibilities out there for understanding how we can build our world better by taking inspiration from plants. And that is a plant you're talking about as a, something very slippery. There are also plants that benefit from being very sticky, right? I right, mean, right like burrs. I mean, so, so 
many plants disperse their seeds by package them, packaging them in fruit that mm. have hooks mm. or spines or otherwise grab onto animal fur or our socks or <laughs> an ostrich's foot mm. or something like that. So yeah, I mean, plants really have uh, been very inventive mm. in, 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 in working out how to move mm. even though they are stuck in one place. I think that's, that, that's the other thing I'd say about plants that uh, kind of encourage everybody to go out and look because I really want everyone to be an ambassador mm. for plants. Plants are the true aliens on this planet. What I mean by that is that it's very interesting if you go and look in movies and when plants start to become scary to us is when they, have, they, be, they get given animal characteristics mm. like teeth or I, I don't know, you know, claws or et cetera. But in fact, plants themselves are such a different way of coping with life's challenges mm. that it's very hard as animals to understand just how different an evolutionary trajectory that is. And you know, they have made uh, a whole set of novel uh, answers to life's great problems, you know, how, to, how to live, how to survive, how to grow, how to reproduce, how to move while still being stationary. I was thinking when you talked about penicillin, what is a plant? Because there are things that are clearly animals and things that are clearly plants, but where are the boundaries well, between great plants and mold? And I, is, I, I don't know. That is such a great question. Penicillin is more closely related to you and me mm. <laughs> than, than, I, than either is to plants. Mm. Fungi and animals are more closely related than plants are. Plants are, are, are super interesting because if you look in the sea, there are plant-like things that are not our green plants. In fact, from unicellular organisms that sucked in uh, a photosynthetic bacterium, that was, becomes the chloroplast, and that's how we start the kind of plant-like nature of plants to be the ability to photosynthesize. Three distinct streams, three independent evolutions of becoming multicellular and becoming plant-like happen. Mm. So the brown algae is one, the red algae is another, and green plants, green algae and green plants is another. And they all come to the same answers. Mm. That's what's really cool. They all come to something stuck, being stuck, so a hold fast or roots or whatever. Mm. They all come to having some sort of system for moving material through. They all come to having um, multicellular thick laminas that can photosynthesize, making flat blades that can photosynthesize in the sunlight. It's, it's interesting that photosynthesis drives everything else, drives the whole morphology. Even if these are different evolutions, they still come to the same place. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I would predict if we were out in outer space and we found some creature, what, call it whatever you want, that did that process of sucking using sunlight as its, as its uh, fuel, it would have the same form. Mm -hmm. It would have to have the same form. And if we want to do that, as we move through space and use starlight as fuel, that would also have to take the same, we'd also have to take the same form because that's that ability to take sunlight and crystallize it into sugar is, sunlight as crystallized sugar is uh, the essential thing that plants do, mm -hmm. that plants are. And there's something else they did first. We have solar panels. Yeah, solar panels, of course. But solar panels produce electricity. They, uh, there are also researchers who want to make an artificial leaf simply to do the first part of photosynthesis, mm. which is splitting water. Mm. Splitting water so we get hydrogen. Hydrogen is a fuel. So this is you know, eminently possible, and it's directly copied from the photosynthetic process in plants. Photosynthesis is such a cool process. It's actually two processes coupled together. One is, let's take the energy of the sun, which is radiant energy photons, mm. let's make a chemical fuel out of it. Mm. A chemical fuel, ATP, NADPH, you know, chemical names, but the point of these are small, high energy molecules. Mm. Those get transferred to do the process of taking a carbon dioxide atom and linking it to five other car carbons to make sugar. Mm. So those two things happen. They don't actually even happen, happen at the same time. I mean, you can do the light, what we call the light reactions that need sunlight in the daytime, and you can do the carbon fixation at night. I mean, you can separate them in time, you can separate them in space, but there are those two components that have to happen. 
to get sugars out at the end. Mm. What, what grasses like maize do is they actually separate it spatially. Mm. It makes it much, much more efficient because there's a villain in this piece. The villain is an enzyme called Rubisco. Mm. Rubisco is that the enzyme which enables carbon dioxide to be stuck onto the five carbon to make a six carbon, six mm. carbon being glucose. Mm. So that's the good thing. That's the nice nature of Rubisco. But uh, CO on the end of Rubisco stands for carboxylase oxygenase. If there's too much oxygen, then it fixes oxygen instead of carbon dioxide and makes a poison. So that is why oxygen has to get out of the leaf. Mm. You can't keep it in there because if it builds up, then you start poisoning the plant by, by that process. And it's because Rubisco, what's interesting is, you know, why make an enzyme that's so faulty? Mm. It seems like Rubisco evolved before there was any oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm. You know, plants made the oxygen, but Rubisco, that is the start of that whole revolution, evolved before then. Mm. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Andrew Douse for joining me today. For more information about the Department of Plant Biology, Ecology, and Evolution, visit plantbio.okstate.edu. You can also share feedback about the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the hashtag CassCowboys. And with that, we end the episode as we always do, asking how the arts and sciences are making the world a better place. Thanks for listening. You know, is that really the way to think about it? I mean, the world almost is the arts and sciences. I wouldn't say it's making the place a better, making the world a better place. I suppose what I would say is that uh, diligent inquiry and kind of logical inquiry is what really helps separate things that are skillful to do versus non-skillful to do. And the arts and sciences are all about trying to get to the bottom of phenomena and relationships and uh, culture, etc., in a way that allows you to make informed decisions. And that, to me, is entirely the function of education. Um, regardless of discipline, it, it's, mm. it's, it, it is giving you the tools to make intelligent decisions. I mean, it's partly about building up knowledge, etc., but it's those tools. And, and actually, that's, that's, I think, almost the most important thing that I can teach is not so much plants per se, but I'm using that really as the vehicle for thinking about how is the world put together? What is the value of evidence? How do we understand this phenomenon versus this one? What is cause? What is not cause? All those questions are just everyday life uh, questions that, you know, are the study of the arts and of the sciences and of the social sciences is the way in which we gain those tools to, to make a difference. <laughs>